this morning. We really appreciate you being here. And, and our hope, my name is Mike, by the way, I'm the lead pastor here at MCC. And uh, our hope is that we can be an encouragement to you in your faith journey. Uh, and if that is you are at the beginning point with Jesus in your life, we want to help you begin well. And if you are on that journey, we just want to help you uh, take that journey well. We want to walk with you, beside you, and uh, so just grateful that you're here. And if you are watching online, we're glad you're with us there. Please, if you haven't yet, check out our website. You can learn more about us there. And my hope is that if you live close enough, if you're in the vicinity, that you'll join us here in the big room at some point soon, all right? Hey, uh, so we are in this new series. Uh, we're starting this morning called Touchy Subjects. And over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, characters in Scripture and what we can learn from them about relationships in our lives. And so uh, the, the person we're going to talk about today, his name is King David. And my guess is uh, that there are two stories that almost everybody has heard about with King David. And so, well, let's just find out if I'm correct. My first one is, uh, the first thing I think we've all heard about is David killed the giant... Goliath. Yeah. So uh, look at that. One for one so far. All right. Here's the second right here. David committed something with somebody. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. Look at that. Two for two. Now I point those out to remind to you, uh, to remind you very specifically, and I want to say this in such a way that you hear this. David fought two giants in his life. One he defeated. One defeated him. And that second giant is still defeating people today. This morning, we are going to look at how Satan has taken something which is a God-given gift, and he has taken it and he's perverted it, and he has weakened our nation, he's weakened the church, and he is destroying families, he's destroying lives with this thing. And so we're going to, so we're going to start our touchy subject series with perhaps the most familiar story in Scripture of sexual sin, uh, we're going to talk about David and Bathsheba. So let's uh, let's check this out. Second Samuel is where we are. If you have your Bibles with you, you want you're going to want to turn there. I'm going to refer back to, to chapter 10. I want you to be able to see that. If you have your Bibles, uh, if you have your uh, phone with you, the Bible uh, Uversion app uh, has our notes there as well. Be sure to check that out. And uh, with your Bibles, I want to encourage you to keep this with you uh, so you can take some notes for today. There's some things that are not on here that you may want to write down for future reference. So Second Samuel. Samuel 11, beginning in verse 1, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites, they besieged Rabah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, uh, that's the beginning of the story, but I want to give you the background of what's going on here. Uh, in chapter 10 is where it begins, the king of the Ammonites has died. His son has succeeded him as king, and David, in an act of kindness to this uh, nation, sends uh, an, a delegation of men to express his sympathy, but when the Israelite delegation arrives, the Ammonite nobles convince this now young new king that they are actually there as spies. And so just one chapter earlier than the story we're looking at today, in chapter 10, we read this. So Hanan, who is the king, sees David's men. This is the son who becomes king, seized David's men, shaved off half of each man's beard, and cut off their garments in the middle of their 
buttocks and sent them away. Isn't that such a nice way to say butt? Uh, in the middle of their rear ends, their derrieres. And I don't know, listen, I don't know if you can imagine how embarrassing this is to these men. The ridicule that would be heaped on them by the Ammonites. And not just in the king's palace, but on the roads as they leave town because they did not have the luxury of jumping in a vehicle. They didn't all jump in the king's van and head back home. They're walking through the streets like this. And it's interesting to me uh, that what's embarrassing to them is not just their clothing, but it's half of a beard. They're wearing half of a beard and they're on their way home. In verse five, we read, when David was told about this, he sent messengers to to meet the men for they were greatly humiliated and not just about their clothing. The king said, stay at Jericho until you're beards have grown, and then they have come back. I don't know if you can imagine how seething with anger David is because of the treatment to his delegation. And the rest of chapter 10 details how David led his army into battle. They defeated the Ammonite army and their allies, but before he could finish it, to his satisfaction, bad weather set in. You see, because from the end of October into May, Palestine is characterized by strong winds, strong rain, and so it, it makes it unsuitable for war. But David is not prepared to stop. He wants his revenge on the Ammonites for the insults that they have inflicted on his messengers. So in the spring, when the weather broke, that's what our first verse is talking about. When the weather broke, he sends his army out. I just want you to catch the weight of these words in verse 1. He wants to destroy them. He doesn't just want to beat them. He wants to destroy them, and he wants their capital city for his own. That's how angry David is. Uh, And so this is a full-scale offensive, and it's against this backdrop that the story of David and Bathsheba is. So it's a very emotional time for David. And one scholar wrote this about this story we're about to see. He said, no sin save the sin of Adam and Eve has received more press than the sin of David and Bathsheba. So this is a well-known story. People who have never been to church before probably know this story. Verse two, one evening David got up from his bed. He walked around on the roof of the palace and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. So David is about 50 years old now, maybe a little bit older than that. And he had laid down for an afternoon nap. And when he woke up, he goes up on his roof. Eastern kings would build uh, their bedroom chambers on the upper floor of their house, and it would have a door that would open onto uh, what we would call a patio roof. And often it was elegantly furnished. The family, the royal family, would go up there and spend time. Sometimes David would sit with his war council, with his his other counselors, up on the roof, and it was hidden uh, away from the people on the street. People couldn't see him, and that's where David was. He's in this place where nobody can see him, but he can see see out over top of this city. And maybe, maybe I wonder, he's just waking up from a nap. Maybe he just went up, you know, walked out on the roof to stretch. You know, you ever do that when you're waking up? He just went out there to kind of, you know, stretch his legs, stretch his arms, just sort of wake up. Maybe he went out to admire. He's so angry at the Ammonites. And he goes out to look at the strong city, the beautiful city of Jerusalem, which bears his name because it's also, Jerusalem is also called the city of David. It's got his name. And he is the powerful king of Israel looking over his city as his army goes out to battle. Verse 2 says that he walked around on the roof. So if you can imagine, he's waking up, he's walking around a large home, enjoying the sights and the scenes. And then I wonder if in the distance, he doesn't hear maybe the trickling of water. Maybe 
maybe a female voice humming. And as he walks over, he sees a woman bathing just beyond the palace, obviously in full view of, uh, of his backyard. But that rem- when I was in college, I went to Haiti on a mission trip with a bunch of other college students. And I remember I was working up on a roof of a house and uh, our mission team was up there. We're all up there. And I stood up to stretch my back because I'd been bent over. So I stood up to stretch my back and I looked into the yard next to me. And there was this guy taking a bath in a metal tub right outside. And I got to tell you, it startled me. I had no trouble looking away, but it did startle me. Uh, David, on the other hand, had trouble looking away. Verse 2 says that the woman was very beautiful. Verse 3 says that David sent a servant to find out who she was, and despite being told that she's a married woman, he has her brought to the palace, he sleeps with her, and he sends her home. By all accounts, uh, from what we can see, this sure looks like a one-night stand. I just want to stop for a moment to remind many of us what we already know, and some have experienced. Adultery was not just a problem in that day. It is a problem in our day and in our culture as well. As a matter of fact, statistics tell us, uh, people who study tell us that at least 60% of married couples will experience infidelity at some point in their marriage. Six out of 10 married couples And yet we're warned in Scripture, in Proverbs, Old Testament, anyone who commits adultery doesn't have any sense. He's just destroying himself. Listen, if that's you, I'm sorry for the pain that that decision has caused in your life. And if you have a friend that this describes, can I just, they need to hear from someone they trust. And so I hope it's you. I hope they'll hear this from you. Jesus is not looking down his pious nose at them. He is looking at them. He's looking at them with compassion Uh, His heart aches for people who make decisions that have all kinds of repercussions in in not only in their life, but in other lives, in the emotional, relational wounds and trust issues that are caused in the people that they care about the most. And listen, adultery isn't the starting point. It's the result of something else. So when Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what did Jesus point at as the problem? If it's not adultery, what's the problem? Let me give you a hint. I'm so, Wow, okay. Maybe the word's not big enough. I wish I could blow it up. What's the problem? Lust. Thank you. Boy, that is an uncomfortable word to say in church, isn't it? And I wonder if it made people in Jesus's day uh, as uncomfortable as it makes those of us in the church today to say that out loud. And once we get over the angst of hearing the word, I wonder if some of us aren't wondering to ourselves, wait a minute, what did he just say about lust? Did he say, don't lust? I mean, is he serious? Does Jesus not have hormones? Does he, uh, does he know what it's like to be single? Does he think that when you put a wedding ring on your finger that somehow there's this motor that shuts off somewhere else, you know, in your body? Don't think about it. Listen, I I understand the whole don't commit murder, don't be angry thing. I get that. But be a Christian and don't lust? You want me to pretend I'm not a red-blooded American male? Is that what you're telling me, Jesus? Well, two things I want want you to see real quick. 
I'll just point them out so that you at least know these. The first is to think that Jesus is only speaking to men is naive. I want to make sure that we get that. Because 17% of women describe themselves as addicted to pornography. Almost one in five. This next number may shock you. 87% of Christian women have watched pornography. I just want to be real clear. This isn't just a male issue. This isn't a sin that only men struggle with. Here's the second thing I want to make sure you get. Jesus never tells us to pretend to be something we're not. Jesus never says, don't pretend that you're a sexual being. I I think maybe the church has said that, but Jesus never said that to anybody. Jesus may have been the first religious leader to ever come along and say, you'd better not pretend that this isn't part of who you are. You'd better be honest at least with yourself and admit at least to yourself that you are a sexual being. It was, listen, it was God's idea to make us sexual. And he did not go, Okay, there, but I'm not going to like it. He didn't do that with us, right? It's not a sin to be sexual. It's not a sin to think about sex, to want or hope that someday in your future, if not right now, someday in the future, you might have sex. But that's not what Jesus is addressing here. And if that's not what Jesus is saying, then what is he saying? Because if if we can figure that out, maybe he'll stop saying sex up there in church, right? So here's what Jesus is saying that adultery is. He said, adultery is where you've landed. It's just not what got you there. What got you there is lust. And just to be clear, that word lust does not mean a passing glance. You can't always control what you see the first time, but for the most part, just like David, you can control how long you look at it. And if you're going to look at it a second time, and listen, I don't want to overwhelm you with numbers, but I do want you to grasp why this is a problem today. Research, according to most recent numbers, there are three porn websites that have made the top 10 most popular websites in the United States. That means they fell behind only Google, Facebook, YouTube, Amazon, and Yahoo. These three major porn sites now get more traffic than eBay, Twitter, Wikipedia, Instagram, Reddit, and even Netflix. I need you to catch the weight of this thing. Listen, 30% of the internet industry is pornography, almost one-third. The, the, the uh, revenue, porn industry's annual revenue is more than the NBA, NFL, and MLB combined. It's more than the combined resources, uh, revenues of ABC, CBS, and NBC. And I want you to understand, this is why this is so dangerous. It's a huge thing. Here's why it's dangerous. It's big and it's dangerous. Our brains react to pornography the same way an alcoholic might react to seeing a drink advertisement. Our brains respond this way. According to the National Coalition for the Protection of Children and Families, 47% of the families in the United States reported that pornography is a problem in their home. Almost half the people in the United States say this is a problem in my home. And this one, parents, please hold on to this because we've got to be careful with this. But we are understanding that children under the age of 10 now account for one in 10 visitors to porn video sites. I know we've got good kids. (laughs) Listen, I know our kids wouldn't always intentionally do something like this. But sometimes the first touch isn't intentional. But they get drawn back into it. Terry, uh, excuse me, more than this, this, oh man, this blows me away too. More than, in the United States now, more than four in 10 Americans say pornography is morally acceptable, which may explain why it's such a problem in our country. 43% say there's nothing wrong with it. It's okay. 
Why would we be ashamed of this? Of course, this is morally acceptable. Terry Crews, who is an actor, former NFL player, uh, once went to rehab due to his porn use, and he sums up the danger, I thought, really well. He said, my issue was and is with pornography is that it changes the way you think about people. And I just want to let that sit for a moment. It changes the way you think about people. People become objects. People become body parts. They become things to be used rather than people to be loved. And I please, I want to make sure you get this. It isn't what happens accidentally for a moment that's the problem. It's what we choose to linger on. It's what we choose to go back to a second and third and fourth time. So see if, listen, the Bible addresses uh, the way sin comes after us. Look at what James tells us. He says, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. And then these desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. In other words, it starts with something you're interested in and it gets you pointed in the wrong direction. And then it takes baby steps with you to get you there, which is why some people wake up one day, and maybe it was you who woke up one day and said to yourself, how in the world did I ever get here? And if you could think back to your biggest, I wish I could have that moment back moment, whatever that is for you, from bad uh, habits to getting addicted to getting busted to getting kicked out, all the way to blowing up your family because you had an affair, it can't be traced to one event. It would be traced to a long series of events, a long series of bad decisions, and maybe, maybe if we could go back 10 steps and remake some decisions, your life would be totally different. And maybe, maybe there would be less carnage on the ground. So let me say this one more time. Jesus is saying adultery is where you landed. It's not what got you there. What got you there were a lot of little steps called lust. Adultery is not because you had a bad day. Adultery is not one bad decision. It is a string of bad decisions. And I want to remind you of this as well, because the book of Acts tells us this is God speaking about David. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man of... David was a man, by God's own words, a man after God's own heart. And here's what I want you to, I just want to make sure you get this. Listen, David sinned grievously with horrible consequences, affected many lives. A child died because of this sin. But this was not the act of someone who hated God. We get this idea that somehow if we give our lives to Jesus, that sin will no longer have any appeal to us, that, that, we'll be a, that Satan will leave us alone, and that we'll no longer sin. And yet the life of David reminds us that's not true. If anything, you give your life to Jesus, you have a bigger target painted on your back because now the enemy wants you. And so I want to make sure you get this before we leave the numbers. 68% of church-going men and over 50% of pastors view porn on a regular basis. I tell you that because I want you to understand, it's not safe on either side of the pulpit when it comes to pornography. It's not. I want you to know that the strongest, wisest, most spiritual men in the Old Testament, all used by God, by the way, fell in this. This is what took them 
down. I'm talking about Samson, Solomon, and King David, all three of them. And if that's not enough in Billy Graham's autobiography, he tells of an incident from high school. He says his senior year were the night rehearsal for a school play in Sharon High School, and one of the girls in the cast coaxed me into a dark cloakroom. She had the reputation for making out with the boys. And before I realized what was happening, she was begging me to make love to her. And he said, my hormones were as active and alive as any other healthy young males. And I had fantasized about a moment like this. But when it came, I silently cried out to God for strength and ran for my life from that classroom. I want you to understand having a right relationship with God does not exempt you from temptation in general, specifically not in this area. It should and does help us defeat temptation, but obviously it didn't David. So what happened? How did this happen to him? I just want to show you that David allowed this into his life in three ways. And if we're going to avoid this attack on our purity, whether we're single or married, we have to avoid these same mistakes. So the first one actually happens before our verses. David allowed lust in through his mind. And, and that's probably not a surprise to anybody. That's, you know, one way. It just, we allow it into our minds. But let me tell you how that happened in David's life. In chapter five of this same book, we read this about David. David took more concubines and wives from, so he, he just had more than one wife. He had multiple wives and concubines, which some of, somebody in the room who's not thinking very clearly is thinking to themselves, Boy, that should have taken care of the problem, you know, shouldn't it? But it didn't. Obviously, it did not. And the blessing of God was on him and on the people and on his decisions and on his leadership. And he, but he increased the number of his wives and concubines in direct contradiction to what God had said in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Uh, before the Israelites ever make it into the promised land, God is already looking forward. So this is way before David, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it and you say, let us sing a, set a king over us like all the other nations around us. So we, God knows this is going to happen. He says, there's some things you need to avoid. Be sure to appoint a king over you uh, that the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. And then look at this, something else he says. He must not take many wives or what? Or his heart will be led astray. <coughs> On your notes it says Satan doesn't have to fill us with the hatred of God. He just has to fill us with the forgetfulness of God. In the moment, you don't have to hate God. You just have to kind of forget about him with this other thing that your eyes are firmly on. Here's the second way David allowed lust in through his eyes. This is very obvious for this story, obvious in our own lives. He's on his roof. He sees a woman bathing. Can I tell you this? And I really didn't think about this. I was talking with some of our staff about this passage, and they said something I'd never really thought about before. He knew what he was going to see. Do you think the king had not been up on that part of the roof before? Do you think he didn't know whose roof lines his palace looked over? Do you think he didn't know there was a bathtub up there that she would be bathed? Do you think he was unaware of those things? This time that he's lived there? Let me ask it another way. Do you think you would live within the eyesight of the White House and not know if they could see in your bathroom window? I think she knew the king could see her from where he was. Listen, it's, we have, men and women have to be on the lookout here. 
I think they both knew. It wasn't a surprise. It may have caught him off guard that it happened at that moment, but he knew there was a chance that it was going to happen. We make the same bad decisions. Here's the third way. He allowed lust in through his mouth. Verses 3 and 4 says he inquired about her and he invited her. Even though we found out she was married, still invited her because he was the king and he could. So lust came in through his eyes, to his mind, and out of his mouth. The question is, what do we need to do? How do we protect ourselves today? Here's the first. I just need to make a decision. I have to decide if this is going to be part of who I am or not. John, in chapter 3, Jesus says this. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Think about this for a moment. Men love darkness instead of the light. So here's the question we have to ask, and we have to be able to answer this question. Do I love Jesus or do I love sin? And sitting in church, the answer is so obvious. But when we walk out of here, we have to admit that sometimes this is a tough question to answer because there is a battle going on for our hearts and our souls. And Satan is not going down without a battle. And if you, th- if you think the answer to this is always an easy Jesus, I have a feeling you're not paying attention to your own life, let alone anyone else's. Listen, on your notes, it says this. You make your decisions, and then your decisions make you. And we need to be aware of that. Here's the second way. I need to confess my sin to God. You need to go immediately to him. In just a few moments, you will have that opportunity. All of us have this opportunity in just a few moments to go to God. It's not just about lust. It's not just about adultery. It's about sin in our lives. But when we sin, we go to God. When David was confronted with this sin, Psalm 51 tells us what he said to God. He said, have mercy on me, O God, for I know my transgressions. He wrote this down. I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me, and it's only against you that I have sinned. God, I know I have done what is evil in your sight. We need to have this conversation with him as well. First John, uh, toward the end of the New Testament, the, uh, the uh, Apostle John writes, if we confess our sins, he, that is God, if we talk to God about our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, purify us from all unrighteousness. Do we tell God that we've sinned because he's unaware of it? Is that why we have to tell him? Is there no one listening? Hello. Do we have to tell God our sins because he's unaware? No. There is something about talking to him and confessing our faults to our father. And what does he do when we ask for forgiveness? He forgives us. By the way, who is John writing to? Writing to the early church. He's not writing to the culture. He's writing to the church. He's writing to us. And he's saying when we are faithful in confessing our sins, God will forgive us. Here's the third thing. I need to avoid it. And I hope that is obvious. And sometimes even when it's obvious, it's not easy. But I think it's part of the reason why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, we need to flee from sexual immorality. Run for your life. Run, run for your marriage. Run for your kids. Run for your friends. 
Run, run for the sake of God's name on your life from this thing that wants to destroy you. It means run for your life. Andy Stanley said the problem is instead of fleeing, we flirt. Instead of running, we stand and we stare. We flirt because we think, eh, it's no big deal. I can, I can deal with this. I got this. I got a handle on this. It's nothing. And then it's got us. I don't have a choice about what walks into my path, but I do have a choice about where I linger. And for some of us here today, when it comes to the area of lust, you are allowing your eyes to take you where you do not want to go. Please hear that with the love and yet the power of God with which it is intended. You are allowing your eyes to take you where you do not want to end up. Please stop where you are. Here's the last one. I need accountability. Somebody else has to know. I have to tell. You have to tell everybody, but you have to tell somebody so that somebody not only knows your struggle, but carries the burden with you. That's why in James chapter 5, we read that if you have sinned, you should tell each other what you have done. Then you can pray for one another and be healed. You've got somebody else praying for you, lifting you up to God. The prayer of an innocent person is powerful, and it can help a lot. Ann Lander said this toward the bottom of your notes, nothing makes it easier to resist temptation than a proper upbringing, a sound set of values, and witnesses. So, uh, we listen. We want to help. This isn't about just pointing out something that's wrong in our culture. This is about us as brothers and sisters walking this faith journey, this path together, and being able to help each other on this path please, please let us help. There are two resources that are available immediately to you. Before you ever leave the room, you can have these two resources. One is the version of the Bible reading app. Many of us use this for our daily reading. And if you go to the menu and then you choose plans and then you search porn or pornography, these plans, uh, can we hit that next one? Uh, these plans will come up. It's not, this is not the cure-all. But this is putting your mind on the Word of God where it belongs. You can't just remove something from your life. You have to replace it with something better. And so replace it with the Word of God. Allow God's Word to strengthen and help you. The other resource that is available before you ever leave the room is Right Now Media. Everyone who attends MCC, our leadership has paid for you to have availability to Right Now Media, which has Bible studies on all kinds of topics. If you go to the menu and you search porn, these will come up. And I'll tell you, the discipleship group I'm a part of, I meet with three other guys a couple times a month. We, this Brett Ullman, he did one called The Man Talk. We watched that together. And so from knowing that, I've not watched this, but knowing what he did there, I have a feeling he's not pulling any punches here. And so some of these, listen, I can't vouch for all of them. But I can tell you this is a resource that is available to us. It's Bible studies. I'm hoping it will be helpful. On your notes, you'll see the name Sheila Ray, and I don't know her last name, Gregory. I've read a couple of her articles. What I read, she uh, at least is great at talking to women and helping women if their husbands have been addicted to porn and how that affects women and helping you walk through that a little bit. Please, please. And if it's possible... My guess is, if this is taking a hold in your life, you need professional help to overcome this addiction. And I will tell you, we have Christian counselors that we can recommend to you that will help you with this. Uh, we can, there are meetings in our area for people who have struggled with pornography. 
We want to help you. Please let us help you with this. John Wolfe said this is at the bottom of your notes. Sin takes you further than you plan to go, keeps you longer than you plan to stay, and costs you more than you plan to pay. And some of us in this room, those words feel like 100 pounds each. Either because you've allowed this particular sin to destroy your life, or because through you, this sin has destroyed the lives of people that you love, and it just kills you to see that they're in so much pain. And can I just say this? To try kicking this on your own, please don't do that. You are fighting on your own because you've never asked Jesus to be Lord of your life. He will not force his way in. He won't make you allow him to be king. But he does invite you to allow him to sit on the throne of your life, and with him comes the power of the Holy Spirit. With him comes the power of the kingdom of his Father. And if you've never made that decision, please, listen, I will be right here. after. I'll be right up front after the service. Today, today we can do that. If you believe that Jesus died for your sins on the cross, three days later he rose from the dead, and he is coming back to get his kids, and he walks daily with us. If you believe that, you're ready. And I, we, just, please let us help you with that. I'll be right up here. Paul wrote this to the church in uh, Ephesus. He said, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Do you know when this happened? When did God in, when did in Christ God forgive us? When did that happen? At, at the cross, Right? When Jesus died on the cross for us, each week we come to a time, and we're about to right now come to a time where we remember that Jesus died on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins, all of us. Our time of communion is a time to be reminded of our need for forgiveness as well as our need to forgive. So in light of what we've talked about this morning, this is a moment of decision for some, maybe many because we have a secret in our lives that we pray to God no one finds out about because we're ashamed of it and we're afraid of it. So this is a moment to ask God for forgiveness, but can I remind you, just as it is a time to ask for your own forgiveness, this is a time where you may need to ask God for help in forgiving someone else who has hurt you because of their decision. This does not come easy. It is a hard battle. But your forgiveness of the other person is for your sake. It is God's gift to you when someone else has made a decision that has hurt you. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Let's go to him in prayer. God, thank you for, gosh, this time each week in worship where we get to stop. We just stop. And we spend time remembering, Jesus, that you died on the cross for us. And we spend time remembering that if we will just give ourselves over to you, if we allow you to be the king of our life, to sit on the throne, to call the shots, to be the leader of our life, if we will allow that to happen, Holy Spirit, you move in and you take up residence in our lives and you help us overcome when we make that decision. You empower us. So thank you for this moment when we get to remember, Jesus, how you did that for us on the cross. 
and that, Father, you allowed your son to die. We come before you humbly now, acknowledging our need for your forgiveness. For we all struggle with sin. And God, we we ask for your help because there, there are people in our lives that need our forgiveness. And we need to forgive. It's for us too. So God, in this moment, we hold these emblems that remind us of the body and blood of Jesus that was broken on the cross, that was shed for our sins. May we come clean before you. And may we ask for help in being forgiven or in forgiving others. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, the King.